Gentlemen, we ended with the, the knowledge problem that's presented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about the first knowledge problem being that all knowledge is presuppositional. You can't know for sure because all of your knowledge is based on things you can't prove. The second knowledge problem is that we tend to treat knowledge as an end in itself. Knowledge is not an end in itself. Knowledge is always, biblically, a means to an end. The end of knowing God. And specifically, to the end of loving the Lord and loving people. Now there's a third knowledge problem, and that is the problem of complexity. The overall trajectory of not just Genesis, but the whole of the Bible is from simplicity to complexity. Think about it this way. In Eden, you start out with two people. They are naked. They are innocent. And God periodically visits them. And there's only one prohibition that they have. Those are simple circumstances. Now fast forward to where the Bible ends in the New Jerusalem. It's myriads and myriads of people. That's more complex than two. The people are fully clothed and they're fully clothed because that clothing represents their righteousness. That is, they are not innocent, but they are righteous. And righteousness is more complex than innocence. Living in a city is more complex than living in a garden. And living with God is more complex than a God who simply periodically visits. And as you progress through the Bible, I would offer for your consideration that Christ is more complex than the law. Having a relationship with Jesus is more complex than keeping the law. Living with both a temporal and an eternal hope is more complex than having just a temporal hope. And learning to love is more complex than learning knowledge. I remind you of 1 Timothy 1.5 where Paul makes this important statement, the goal of our instruction. Okay, that's a, that's a, your ears ought to perk up. This is why I'm writing, says Paul. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is more complex than knowledge in part because love entails knowledge. You can't love without knowledge. Furthermore, the Bible contains what we call antinomies. That is, there are things in the Bible that seemingly you cannot reconcile. Things like the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And the Bible is full of these. And that introduces another level of complexity to the Bible. Righteousness and love are multifaceted and they are complex. Now grab this, they are complex because all of the virtues work in concert. 
I see bumper stickers all the time, be kind. Gentlemen, kindness is an aspect of love, but kindness is not love. It's simply one tiny aspect of it. Righteousness, love are complex. And my admonishment to all of us is to embrace that complexity of the Bible. Now, why is there this movement from simplicity to complexity? Is it, is it purposeful? And I'd suggest it absolutely is purposeful. And it's purposeful because the objective, again, is to learn to love God. Think about it this way. If you are a dog lover, it's easy to love a dog, right? Because they're simple creatures. They don't need very much. They don't demand very much of you. Dogs are simple. And so they're easy to love. They're simple to love. On the other hand, loving your wife, that's complex. She's a lot more complex than a dog. And it's harder to love her. And you may not believe me, but God is more complex than your wife. And learning to love him is that much more complex. So this movement from simplicity to complexity is purposeful because our objective is learning to love people who are complex and learning to love God who is even more complex. Now, Let me offer for your consideration that all that I've said is complex. But on the other hand, the commandments are simple, right? They say what they say, they mean what they mean. But what we have done in in our culture today, in our Christian culture today, is we have made the commandments complex. Oh, that's hard to understand. Yeah, you've got, you got to have a seminary degree to understand that particular teaching in the Bible. And we pretend like the commandments are complex on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's simple to love God when it's exactly the reverse. And men, when you do that, That's a mistake to the peril of your soul. Embrace the complexity of the Bible as it exists. It's that way for a reason. Embrace it. And gentlemen, that means that there are going to be things that you cannot resolve. We want answers to everything. You don't get them. The chances that we get them on the other side of eternity approach nil. Embrace the complexity. If you don't understand, don't say, don't try to make it, it's this or it's this, when it's both. Just say, it is both, I believe both, but I have the foggiest idea how they're resolved. That tension is for the health of your soul because that tension produces in you dependence. You have to believe things that you cannot reconcile in your mind. And that calls for faith. And faith 
is what pleases God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, complexity is not about a product. It is a process. That process in and of itself produces dependence because you can't control the outcome of the process. And you can't control the outcome because the outcome involves the work of the Holy Spirit. He's your teacher. As you get into the Word, remember the Word was written by the Holy Spirit. The only way you're going to understand it is if He indwells you and interprets the Scripture for you. The Bible does in fact have secrets, but they are secrets that hide in plain sight. They're available to all, but only the Holy Spirit can show you. And if he doesn't, you can read till the cows come home and you won't understand. And I say to you men that what the Holy Spirit is doing, he's not just reshaping your intellect, huh? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That speaks to the intellect. Now, the Holy Spirit is doing that, but he's doing more than that. He's shaping your very soul. And it involves this complexity that we're talking about. Now, let me summarize the first three chapters of Genesis. Number one, the fall centers on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is the prototype for all idolatry. The antidote to falling for the idols of today is to depend on God and God alone for your knowledge and for your morality. And in saying that, I remind you of the three knowledge problems. Secondly, A loving relationship with God is the reason that we exist. Knowledge is necessary for that relationship, but that knowledge is not an end in itself. Thirdly, the fall necessitated that our relationship with God be a mediated and a redemptive one, hence Jesus Christ. Everything that God brings into your life Everything is redemptive. And so when the things happen to you that you don't like, we need to school ourselves to say, thank you, Lord. I would never have asked for this. But though I don't know the precise reason, I know you are good and that you are doing this because you love me. It is redemptive. It is to make me to to be a better man. And so God, thank you. And Lord, if there's something specific that you are doing this for, reveal it to me and I'll correct it. If there isn't anything specific and it's something you don't want to reveal to me right now, then whatever it is you're doing, I want to cooperate with you. I don't want to resist you. And I want you I want you to complete it. Don't stop until you're done. And finally, 
The process of redemption is lifelong. Remember, it is not just justification. Justification is the beginning, not the end. Sanctification is part of the redemptive process. It's lifelong and it is complex because it entails learning to love, that is agapao, men and God. All right, gentlemen, first thing off the checklist, we're through Genesis 3. And they all said amen. Except they didn't. All right, let's talk about Genesis 4 through 11. Genesis 4 through 11 reveals to us the evolution of sin and evil. Sin and evil, I suggest, were born when first Adam... I'm sorry, first Satan and then Adam opposed the will of God. Opposing the will of God is the essence of sin. But sin and evil are not static. They evolve and they grow. And these chapters, Genesis 4 through 11, shed light on this evolutionary process. The first place I want us to look is in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. And Scott, if you've got that, would you read that? This is the story of, of Cain and Abel. <clears throat> Genesis 4, 3 through 8. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about that they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So the first man born on the planet was a murderer. Quite a start, huh? We're not told in the Genesis account what it was about Cain's sacrifice that displeased God. It may be that we're not told because Cain didn't ask God. Maybe he really didn't care. But we do know why God was displeased. And it's in 1 John 3, verses 11, 12, that answers the question, why? First John 3, 11 through 12. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Why do the wicked hate the righteous? Because they're righteous. Period. That's why they hate him. Now, gentlemen, that phenomenon is stamped into the human race. And there is a lineage from Abel that runs now through the rest of time. 
Jesus points to this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 34 and 35. Matthew 23, 34 through 35. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's a remarkable statement. Do you understand what Jesus is doing? He is linking Abel to all the unrighteous blood shed. And he specifically points out the prophets. And the prophets to Israel were almost universally persecuted and many of them killed. Stephen points this out in Acts 7 in the sermon that he gives just before they stone him. Now, you see similar language to this in Revelation chapter 18, the last verse of that chapter, and that chapter is describing commercial Babylon. Scott, 1834 of Revelation. Revelation 18:24, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who had been slain on the earth. Again, men, this is reminiscent of what Jesus says in Matthew 23. In other words, there's this linkage from Abel all the way to the last martyr. And when you, when you read about the fifth seal in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, that seal draws reference to the martyrs. And they are under the bronze altar in heaven. And they remain there until the resurrection of the dead. So God's got a special place for those guys. But that is part of how God has woven history. There is this lineage from Abel right up to the last martyr. Nothing will stop it. There's a fixed number, and when that number is full, the Lord will finish things. Now, I'm going to move on from there. The point point of that is that the wicked hate the righteous because they're righteous, period. That's just a fact of life. The second place I want to look is in chapter 6, and this is the time of Noah. And I think, I think I'm not going to have you read that, Scott. It's a little bit too long uh, for right now. But the point, one of the points that you get from reading that, those, those first verses of Genesis chapter 6 is you see this exponential growth in evil. It never stops. So that God says of them, the thoughts and intents of their heart were only evil continually. Evil will never, ever voluntarily stop. 
Evil must be destroyed because it won't stop voluntarily. There's a second feature of the sin in Noah's flood in which you have this weird um, event of the so-called sons of God marrying the daughters of men, which seemingly are the fallen angels who are taking um, human wives. And it seems to suggest that this process of, of the demonic world wanting to intervene in our world was checked by God at that point. But again, when you fast forward to Revelation, that world, that demonic world, is heavily infiltrated into our own. Again, there is worship of, outright worship of demons, Satan, and the Antichrist. Let me move on to the flood in chapter 11. Um, again, I'm not going to have you read that whole section, but recall what their ambition is in building the Tower of Babel. It's to make a name for ourselves. There is no mention of any deities. There's no mention of God himself or any of the false gods. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And men, this is evil as secularism or evil as humanism. It is an attempt to utterly and completely repudiate God. It's interesting that what God does in response to this is to confuse the language. But gentlemen, re re remind yourself what happened because of this. In doing this, God not only changed, gave men different languages, he produced different ethnic groups, different racial groups, different nationalities. And what are the results of those things? War. In other words, God thought what they were doing was so bad that it is better for all the things we just mentioned to happen than for the human race to get together and make a name for themselves. Because if, again, he says nothing will be impossible for them. So Noah, or, um, the Tower of Babel in effect, what God was doing was delaying this generation of which we are a part. It is naked secular humanism that we strive for. And it is an abomination to God. How long he delays, I do not know. There's a second feature of events that took place after the Tower of Babel and that is the rise of idolatry. There's no mention anywhere in the Bible that I can find prior to the Tower of Babel that idolatry took place. It's as though God drove the human race into the arms of the idols because it was better that than to think 
we are the measure of all things. There's a measure of humility that comes even from pagan idolatry. At least they knew that they were not in charge of their own destiny. At least the pagans knew that there was a wisdom greater than their own. And at least the pagans knew that sacrifice for the divine is a central part of life. We live in a culture that knows none of those things. And in that sense, it is more evil than even the pagans. And men, some of the modern manifestations of what I'm talking about are social justice, critical race theory, and parenthetically, prior to critical race theory, there was critical theory. And critical theory is the engine that drove the, the cultural Marxists, which is to say political correctness. That was all, that was all critical theory. Critical race theory is simply a slight modification of critical theory. But the idea is to relentlessly criticize and abolish whatever existed. And their specific tar targets were the church and Western civilization. And again, they were quite explicit that that's what they wanted to do. And they did it. I'm going to stop there and I'm going to get us to chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis. In these chapters, you see the initial stages of the plan of redemption. It begins with one man, Abram, later to be renamed Abraham. Now, what exactly is it that God is accomplishing when he starts with Abraham. Well, if you think about it from the point of view of God, you've got certain, certain obstacles you have to overcome. Because, again, the objective is, is Jesus, right? That's what all this is leading up to. So God has a roadmap for how he's going to make that possible. But again, he's got some problems he's got to overcome. The first of those problems is he's got to raise up a people to whom to send them. You got, you got the whole planet. You, do you send them to Zimbabwe? Or Germany? Or New Zealand? Where do you send them on this big place? So you have to identify a place to send him. Then you have to give, you, you have to raise up a people, Having, having raised up the people to whom to send them, you have to give them a context for understanding who and what Jesus is about. That's what the law was about. And then you have to get them, that people, to the right location. That's what the Exodus is about. And then you have to secure that location, which is what Judges, Kings, and Chronicles are about. So, all of this and more is contained in the promises to Abraham. 
but none of it is yet actualized by the time you get to the end of Genesis. With respect to the, to the end of Genesis, when you get to the end of the book, there are 70 Jews. Now they're in Egypt through a series of miracles. God puts Joseph there. There's a famine, and I won't go into all those, those details. Most of you know them anyway. But at any rate, at the end of the book, there's 70 Jews in Egypt. And they're in a favorable position. But time goes on, and the old Pharaoh isn't there anymore. And the new Pharaoh is worried about these people. And so he enslaves them. And so the Jews spend 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And God uses this slave nation to be his people. You get it? Who brags about being a slave nation? This is not history as people tell it. This is history as God tells it. My people started out a bunch of slaves, says God. And that's good by me. I have no problem with that, says the Lord. That's good by me because they're my people. So they become this large slave nation within Egypt. And that takes place between Genesis and Exodus. So the Exodus begins the journey to the promised land. They're not there yet by the time you get to Exodus, but they're on the way. The land has been identified. It was identified to Abraham, and they're on their way. But now they have to be given a context for understanding what this Messiah is about, and that is the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law gave them the framework for understanding Christ. Getting the people to the promised land is accomplished in the last four books of the Pentateuch. And securing the land begins in the book of Joshua. Now that's the end of Genesis 50. Now, I may double back. Let's see, I've got... I think I'm going to be okay. Before I move into the rest of the Old Testament, when you go to the Hebrews Hall of Fame, chapter 11, you see all these, these heroic figures of the Bible. And half of them come out of the book of Genesis, way more than any other book. I want to just briefly walk through you, with you, the ones that are, lay, are, are listed in Hebrews 11. We've already talked about Abel. And Abel is the first of the heroes of the faith listed in, Genesis, uh, in Hebrews 11. And he's the first martyr. And as such, he reminds all of us that if you are faithful to God, you'll be hated by the world. If you're faithful, you'll be hated by the world. 
and that we have to love Christ more than we love our own lives. The second one who's mentioned is Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. Enoch is a type of those who will one day be raptured. There's a generation of the followers of Christ who won't see death. Enoch gives us an image of what that looks like. And he teaches further that the earth as it is now is not our home. The third that is mentioned is Noah. And Noah represents the first prophet. And like the prophets who followed him, his message went unheeded. Remind you of Christ's words in Luke 6.26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so your father spoke of the false prophets. If everybody thinks you're a great guy, you're on the wrong track. The fourth is Abraham. Abraham, says Paul, is the father of all who are of faith. And men, Abraham did something hard, and he did something simple. The simple thing he did is he believed God. That is available to everybody. It takes no special skill to believe God. But what makes Abraham special is how few are like him. How few believe everything God says. And then my admonition to you is don't make any apologies about the Bible. When all the final returns are in, the Bible will not be blushing. There's going to be a lot of blushing when everything is known. But it won't be from the Bible. The Bible is true. Be like Abraham. Believe everything it says. And don't make excuses for it. It's not your word. It's God's. And he can take care of his own reputation. Sarah is the fifth. She's a type of Mary in that she gave birth to a child of promise. But <clears throat> there's something there's something of a disconnect in her life. Hebrews says that Sarah considered him, that is God, she considered God faithful. And yet, when you read the Genesis account of it, she laughed when she heard the promise that she as an old woman was going to have a child. And then when the angel said, you did laugh, she said, no, 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 I really didn't. So she didn't tell the truth the first time, and when she was called on it, 
She didn't tell the truth again. It doesn't sound like she really believed God. So what gives with that? Let me suggest that Sarah is a message of hope. Consider 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord appears, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. I think about that verse and God seeing all my motives. That doesn't give me hope because I know my motives are mixed. And yet, I suggest that verse applies to Sarah. God saw something in her that doesn't come through in the text. Do what he says. Maybe you've even got a crappy attitude about it. But do it. And each man's praise will come to him from God. It's a message of hope because God, though he will judge us, he is gracious and merciful in that judgment. And gentlemen, there's also a cautionary tale in the 1 Corinthians 4 5 passage. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Men, we dare not be hasty in our judgment. None of us knows all of the facts. Withhold judgment unless it's absolutely necessary for you to pass judgment. And when you do, remember that the measure you use will be used against you. Now one of my favorites is the next one, Isaac, because in a lot of ways, Isaac is the least impressive guy in the whole group. He's got a crummy marriage. Uh, he favors one son over the other. Um, he, he, just, he just seems like sort of a weak guy. And um, <clears throat> I thought about him, what it is about him. Excuse me. Think about what the guy went through. He's like a teenage boy. And the old man takes him up on a hill, makes him carry the sticks, lays the sticks out and throws him on the pile. Holds a knife over him, ties him up, holds a knife over him, and he's ready to kill him until God stops him. And you're that teenage boy laying there. I don't know the scars it left. But the remarkable thing about Isaac is he stands for the ordinary and unimpressive, maybe even the downtrodden, but he remained faithful. Remember, men, he took the faith of his father 
and passed it on to his son. The father that stood there. That's impressive. And gentlemen, as a generation, what Isaac did, passing upon, passing the faith of his father to his kids, is something we as a generation have failed to do. The faith of my parents' generation is not the faith of my generation. And the faith of my generation is not the faith of my children's generation. For three or four generations now, we fail to do what Isaac did. The next guy is Jacob. It says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. In, in blessing each of the sons of Joseph, <clears throat> he passed over Reuben, the eldest. I want to read to you what First Chronicles says about that. It says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Did you catch that? It's the law of the harvest. Reuben screwed up in a pretty significant way. God didn't ding him right away, but he took him out of the genealogy. And he put in Joseph's sons. But the second thing about jo about uh, Jacob, is that he worshipped leaning on the top of a staff. Why is that praiseworthy? Well, it reminds us of how he got that, why he needed that staff, why he had that limp. And it was from wrestling the angel, remember? That weird thing where he wrestles the angel and the angel's trying to get away. And Jacob won't let him go. I won't let you go until you bless me. And so the angel touches his hip, and his hip goes out of joint. It's a pretty nasty injury. And he's a cripple the rest of his life. But the angel blesses him. And it seems to me what that teaches us is it's something very important. Jacob understood that his problem was with God, but he also understood that his solution was with God. That's a lesson that all of us have to take to heart. Your problems are with God, but he's also your solution. He may touch you and put your joint out of, out of socket, but he's the one who blesses as well. The last one is Joseph. Joseph says the author of Hebrews is great because he gave excellent funeral instructions. He made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Well done, Joseph. Joseph believed the promises of God. 
He believed that one day, as a people, his people would leave Egypt and go to the promised land. And his hope was there. His hope was in that promise and not having some grand pyramid pyramid built for him in Egypt. He shows us the necessity of an eternal hope. So that's Genesis. We've got half an hour to do the rest of the Bible. Easy peasy. All right, from, <clears throat> from Judges, sorry, my nose is just running like a faucet up here. From, Genesis, uh, from Judges to Malachi, the focus turns to five things. The first is the pernicious, soul-destroying effects of idolatry. That drum is beat over and over and over from the judges until the last prophet, Malachi. Because of Israel's refusal to forsake the idols, God sent first the ten northern kingdoms into the Assyrian captivity where they vanished. And hence they're called the ten lost tribes. Their national identity is lost to all but God. The southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, several hundred years later, a couple hundred years later, were taken into the Babylonian captivity. And the issue was, number one, failure to keep the Sabbath, and number two, idolatry. And God was explicit in telling Judah why he, was, why he would do this to them. And so, here the nation of Israel spends 70 years in Babylon, this great pagan empire. And during that time, they invented the synagogue system. And the synagogue system was designed to teach the people the law so that God would never get mad at them like this and, and put them in spiritual jail. But while they're there, Ezekiel records something. And it's in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. If you'd read that, Scott. Ezekiel 14, 3. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? <clears throat> he refers to idols of the heart. Now note with me that by the time you get to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, he never refers to idols or idolatry. He never uses those words. Evidently, Israel had successfully stopped idolatry. But this Ezekiel passage is a transitional passage that talks about idols of the heart. And Jesus did address that in Mark 7, 6 through 9. Now, did I give you that, Scott? Mark 7, 6 through 9. 
Mark 7, 6 through 9. And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So <clears throat> he's talking about idols of the heart, that is, idols that I've invented. So I read, I'm an Old Testament, I mean, I'm a, a Jew of Jesus' time. I read the law and I say, you know what? That could use some modification. So I'm going to change X, Y, and Z, just tweak it a little bit to make it a little bit better. And Jesus chastises them for doing that. He calls them hypocrites. And if he has a good word for the Pharisees, I can't find it. So this idea of the traditions of men and idols of the heart becomes increasingly seen within the church. And we'll talk about that shortly. The third issue after uh, this internal shift of idolatry from external idols to internal idolatry is the need for proper governance. Israel went from a theocracy to the judges, to kings, and they flunked every one of them. They screwed it up every which way you can screw something up. They became ungovernable. The fourth theme is the prophets. The prophets who announced the future Messiah and his kingdom and call the people to account for their sin. And again, with almost no exceptions, the words of the prophets went unheeded. They certainly went unheeded prior to the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah seemingly alone at that time said to Israel, open the gates, go out, and surrender. And the false prophets said, are you kidding? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard of. We're the apple of God's eye. We're the people of God. God will deliver us. Now how would you know at the time who is the true prophet and who is the false prophet? How would you know? And man, I, I, I can't make this a dogmatic rule, but the guy who's peach, who is teaching repentance and exhorting you to repentance is a guy you ought to listen to. And that's what Jeremiah was doing. The false prophets told him, man, you're good as gold. When you start hearing you're good as gold, you better duck. Finally, there's the wisdom literature that comprises the best philosophy ever written. That philosophy is important because Judaism is a moral religion, and so is Christianity. But the, one of the big differences between Christianity and Judaism is the theological density of Christianity. Christianity invites inquiry. 
which is good news and bad news. The good news is you have to think. The bad news is you might start taking your thinking seriously. You can't afford that. But you do have to think. And the wisdom literature, if you get your arms around what it's teaching, is the best philosophy ever written. If there were a book from the Bible that I was going to give to an unbeliever, particularly one who might be seeking, and if I would ask him to read one book in the Bible, that book would be the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes tells a two very important truths. That first truth is that life has no meaning or purpose. And the second truth is that life is unjust. It is unfair. Now that, both of those things are important. They're true. They're obvious, right? You don't have to, once it's been pointed out to you, if you never thought about it before, once it's pointed out, it's obvious, right? You may say, well, I've got a purpose. I'm going to make money. Or I got a purpose, I'm going to chase checks. Or, 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 or. Whatever your purpose is. The point is, you're going to be dead soon. And then what about your great hope? You got nothing. We're all headed to the grave. Absent an afterlife, there is no purpose. And absent an afterlife, there is no chance for justice. Ecclesiastes is an important book. Job talks about the sanctifying role of suffering. Proverbs, the importance of wisdom. Psalms, life is a poem or a story. And the Song of Solomon, the supremacy of love. Let's talk about the New Testament. I divide the New Testament into... um, three sections, I'm sorry, four sections. The Gospels, Acts, the Epistles, and Revelation. In the Gospels, you see the word and the works of Christ. The cross is the most important event in the Bible more important even than the fall. The reason I say that is the point that Paul makes in Romans 5, that what we gained in Christ is much more than what we lost in Adam. Gentlemen, what we lost in Adam was catastrophic, absolutely devastatingly catastrophic. And yet Paul contends that what we gained in Christ is much more. And one day, that'll be realized and we'll nod in agreement with Paul. Yeah. You were right, Paul. You were right.
in Acts, you see this shift of God's redemptive plan from national Israel to the Gentiles. And the church begins to replace pagan idolatry wherever it spreads. The church becomes increasingly Gentile. Now, the two most important events in the book of Acts are in the first two chapters. Number one, the ascension, and number two, Pentecost. Because without those two events, the church as we know it could not exist. I refer you to John 16, verse 7. Scott, you got it? John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Did you catch what he said? I'm going away. That's the ascension. And if I don't go away, if I do go away, I will send the Holy Ghost. But if I don't go away, I can't send him. So he connects the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So that becomes absolutely requisite for the church to exist as we know it. Now, after those first two chapters, the next most important chapter is chapter 15. Chapter 15 records the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council changed history because in it, Christianity became a religion separate from Judaism. Judaism in all likelihood, or Christianity in all likelihood would have ended up a sect of Judaism had the Jerusalem Council not taken place. Why? Because the argument was about the law. And seemingly everyone but Paul said, look, we're happy to have these Gentiles coming in, but if they're going to follow Christ, they have to keep the law. And Paul makes this bold argument, and you don't really see it in Acts 15, you see it more in Galatians. But his argument basically goes like this. He says, listen, not only do the Gentiles not have to keep the law, neither do the Jews. In fact, if the Jews try to wed it to Christ, let them be accursed. Now he doesn't say that, it's not said in Acts 15, that's said in some of Paul's other writings. But the theological justification for that is explicated in Romans 6 and 7 where Paul says, you as a follower of Jesus Christ died to the law. That's why the law doesn't apply to the followers of Christ because you died to the law. Anyway, that decision changed the course of the church. The second thing that changed the course of the church is in Acts 16. And I'm not going to ask Scott to read that, but basically what's going on there is Paul is in Asia Minor. And he says, I want to go and take the gospel east to Asia. The Holy Spirit gives him a vision. And the Holy Spirit says, no, do not go to Asia. Go to Europe. And so he goes to Europe. That changed the course of the world because it meant Europe became Christian. 
the West became Christian, not Asia. That changed the world. And it drove the church into the waiting arms of Acts 17 and the Mars Hill debate, where Paul debates the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And by the time you read that, <clears throat> that uh, encounter, you get the sense that Paul did not think that that encounter was all that, all that successful, all that helpful. So he goes from the Mars Hill debate, which is less than stellar, and immediately from there, his next stop is Corinth. That's in chapter 18 of Acts. And in his first letter to that church, he writes, Scott, do you have 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19? 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 19. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolish before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Paul had just encountered the best wisdom the world had to offer. And he realized you cannot wed that wisdom with the wisdom of God. And he warned the church. And he warned the church again in Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. But we the church did it anyway. We did what Paul warned us not to do and begin to wed first Plato and then Aristotle to the gospel. And it got incorporated into church teaching. As an antidote to that, let me point to Acts chapter 2 again, verse 42. And again, I'm not going to have Paul read that, uh, Scott read that. But note that what he says, what was said in Acts 2.42 is that the church was continually devoting themselves to the teachings of who? The apostles. I would have thought the next word would be Jesus. But it's not. It's the apostles. And gentlemen, that is a clue for all of us, an important clue. If you want to understand Jesus Christ, you must underline, 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 must understand him as the apostles understood him. Because think about what you're trying to do. You're trying to relate to someone you've never seen, heard, or touched. And that person lived 2,000 years ago. Now, in those 2,000 years, a lot of things have changed. People change, time change, history changes, and we are looking back through a 2,000-year-old cataract. And we don't see so clearly, but the apostles see clearly. And because of this 2,000-year-old cataract, we say we see him more clearly. That's false. We do not see him more clearly. The apostles see him far more clearly than we do. And because we believe we see him more clearly, we feel free to modify the scripture, and particularly the writings of Paul. And gentlemen, I remind you, if you, if you take the, the writings of Paul from 
the New Testament, the doctrine of grace becomes a dim form of what it currently is. Your understanding of grace would be this much without the, the writings of Paul. And yet it is the very same Paul whose commandments we take exception with. Gentlemen, that is inconsistent to the max. Thank you, Paul, very much for your grace. Take your commandments and do whatever you want to, but I'm not listening. That is hypocrisy. You can't have it both ways. Now, <clears throat> we're on to the epistles. And let me suggest without the epistles, the words and works of Christ would be all but unintelligible. Just think about the upper room discourse and what's going on in there. Jesus is talking and he's interacting with the apostles. And the apostles are saying, well, where are you going? What do you mean you're going to go and then come back? Why can't we go with you? Why can't we go to the Father? Where is the Father? They're all over the map. None of them understands. Now, we sometimes poke a little fun at them that they didn't know. But men, I suggest those guys are us. The only reason you understand what Jesus is talking about in the upper room discourse is because the apostles told you. Later on, they explained all of that. Recall what Jesus says in John 16, 12. Listen to this. This is really important. He's talking to his apostles. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The many more things are the epistles. When he explains what happened on the cross. Gentlemen, it is one thing to know what the event was. It's a completely different thing to understand the meaning of an event. Those are two very, very different things. The apostles in their epistles tell us the meaning of Jesus and what he did. And without those epistles, you have no way of understanding. Let's talk real quickly about Revelation. <clears throat> In Revelation, you see the destruction of Satan's kingdom and the, the establishment of Christ's eternal kingdom. The millennial reign of Christ on earth ends in rebellion. And remind yourself, men, that that last rebellion at the end of Revelation comes with Satan bound. He's not on the picture. He's not prompting us to sin. That rebellion is all us. And men, the human beings, that is the non-resurrected folks, they're, they're resurrected people in the millennium, I believe, but those who are not resurrected, who are just like we are now, who live and die in the millennium, every person that goes, of those people who goes into the millennium is a believer in Jesus Christ. Every one of them. The unbelievers don't get in. And that ends in rebellion without the help of Satan. 
I mean, it seems to me that what God has been teaching us among scads of other things is that our problem is not our circumstances. My problem is me. Your problem is you. We don't want to bend the knee because we don't want to bend the knee. We don't want God's rule because I want my rule. And God has taken the human race through its paces by the time you get to the end of Revelation. There's this whole, just think about the survey of what the Bible talks about. And again and again and again is the failure on the part of the people of God to meet God's expectations. And there's always an excuse. And men, by the time our race reaches the end, even us, even guys like us will understand there aren't any excuses. We've been the problem from the get-go and only God can change us. Gentlemen, I hope and pray that you are all in for that change. I hope and pray that you see the folly of resisting the will of God and the folly of trying to bend reality to your will. Men, you are here to bend your soul to spiritual reality. Do you understand? That spiritual reality that is told in the Bible, you are here to conform your soul to that reality and to not try to bend reality to your will. It doesn't work. It didn't in the Garden of Eden. It doesn't in Revelation. And it doesn't today. God, give us the sense. Give us the power. Give us the will to be the men that we know we ought to be. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not giving up on us. We love you. And we long to be with you. For Christ's sake, amen.